and welcome to Pound the Rock, an NBA podcast by The Score. I'm your host, William Liu. I'm joined in studio by my fellow co-host, Joseph Basharo. What's going on? Happy uh, Thanksgiving to our American listeners. And Joe Wolfon. What up? Uh, we are going to discuss the top teams in both conferences and sort of break down um, what weaknesses and shortcomings uh, these teams are currently facing and sort of what solutions uh, would really help these teams. But before we go on, should mention that uh, this episode is brought to you by Entropy, Canada's leader in custom printed t-shirts. Entropy provided us with some awesome score shirts to wear today. Um, shout out to Entropy for getting these through to us super quick. We actually sent through a change to the design at the last minute and uh, you know they really came through with their 24-hour hot rush service. So let's start in the Eastern Conference. Let's start with the Toronto Raptors who have the best record in the East, best record in the NBA they really don't have that many major issues. I think some things like their cold three-point shooting of late and also their sort of bench play, these are things that can be corrected over time that should really be corrected over time. But I, I think the one flaw that the Raptors might have is their crunch time execution. Um, it's, you know, the Raptors have been outscored by 7.7 .7 points per 100 possessions in clutch scenarios, which is, you know, atypical of a team that is otherwise very good. Um, you know, they lost to the Celtics and the Pistons, basically at the buzzer. And I think the issue here might just be that Kawhi Leonard, um, it's not necessarily he's using too many possessions, but the Raptors are basically putting him in a position where he has to create everything. And Kawhi, perhaps because he is rusty, because he is not being utilized correctly, um, you know, he hasn't really delivered on those results just yet. Um, Cash, what, what are your thoughts on the Raptors in terms of their crunch time issues? Is it being overblown here or... Do they have to really look at how they can integrate Kawhi into the offense? I think it's a little overblown. I mean, I definitely think, um, by and large, um, you know, you talk about the last few minutes, not just like the final possession. I do think they need to get a little more creative with the way they get Kawhi the ball. Maybe try to, if they're going to isolate him, maybe, you know, try to get him in the post after a switch and not just rely on him being a walking mismatch and like backing down from the perimeter every time. Um, but I will say, I know you mentioned the Pistons game and the Celtics game. Um, I think those specific situations, when we're talking about the last possession, not all of crunch time, those are the kinds of situations where pretty much every team would run a similar type of ISO, where it's 24 seconds, seconds are left in a tie game where you're just trying to guarantee at worst you're getting to overtime and you want to make sure you're taking the last shot. And a lot of times that just does end up with a guy pounding the rock, pardon the pun, um, uh, until there's not much time left and then, you know, taking a jumper and not necessarily much misdirection like off the ball or screens or anything like that just because they're trying to limit the um, potential for a turnover whereas if you saw in the game in Orlando it was a short clock situation lends itself much more to actually you know a real play being designed and called and you saw that in the, the play that freed up Kawhi for an open three but actually led to the Danny Green game winner so I think a little bit they were victims of circumstance and and falling for things that most teams would do in those situations yeah I'll just go back to something you said about you know not the very end of game situations but kind of their fourth quarter offense in general uh they really tend to go away from pick and roll which I think is their bread and butter and they're one of the most efficient teams in the league when they utilize their bigs and and uh Kyle Lowry has been you know maybe the best point guard in the league this year at hitting the role man um and basically spoon feeding Valanchunas and Ibaka and that has basically lifted their offense to a top five or top six mark so far this season but uh in the fourth quarter they tend to revert to a lot of isolation play where they're clearing out one side of the floor for Kawhi and 
that's fine. Like, you know, I understand wanting to kind of milk the clock when possessions become more important late in close games, but I don't think they should totally abandon what makes them a great offensive team. And even if it's Kawhi who's running that pick and roll, I still think that that's going to be more effective for them than just isolating him. And so I don't know how much of that is on Nick Nurse and how much of it is just on Kawhi because Kawhi has said he's not entirely familiar with the whole playbook yet. He's still figuring things out. He's still learning how to play with his new teammates. And for Nick Nurse, he's emphasized kind of improvisation and playing kind of read and, re- read and react offense. And so if Kawhi is reading and reacting, I think a lot of the time, uh, whether it's because of a lack of trust in teammates that he hasn't spent a lot of time playing with yet, or uh, just you know a, a strong foundational belief in his own ability to score one-on-one, tends to not use those opportunities to make plays for others and is kind of looking to score first, uh, which can be super effective. He's a really efficient uh, one-on-one scorer, but I think I would like to see him kind of explain, expand his uh, his playmaking and look to get others involved because ultimately teams are going to load up on him. He's going to draw a ton of attention and he needs to do a better job, I think, of leveraging that against a defense that, uh, you know, is, is sending extra bodies his way. So um, I think more pick and roll for them late in games uh, and just like not abandoning what makes them good. Yeah, I also think that, look, that point you brought up about Kawhi not knowing most of the offense yet, like, I mean, he himself has admitted that. And I think Nick Nurse, you know, he has sort of prioritized, as most coaches do, you put in the defense first and then you circle back to the offense. And even without the complete sets and everything in the playbook being set up, you know, the Raptors are still one of the most efficient offenses in the in the league. But I think a lot of that is coming down to talent, really. And I think um, one trend that you've seen with the Raptors, that's and this is dating back to, you know, this season when Kawhi's joined them, it's that, like, Kyle Lowry is very integrally involved in the offense for most of the game. And then in the fourth quarter, he starts to basically make sure that the go-to score, before it was DeRozan and now it's Kawhi, that those guys are the guys, you know, he's funneling possessions towards them and sort of he's taking a step back as a point guard, which I think, to be honest, I think, you know, like you mentioned, more pick and rolls. Like, I think Kyle, he kind of does shy away from the regular offense a little bit in the fourth quarter. I think the execution there, you know, is not necessarily as solid as can be. And I think... In terms of Kawhi, he's not an unwilling passer. When, like, when he sees double teams, he's very good at you know finding the open man. It's just that I don't think right now, based on the way the Raptors are getting him offense, like he doesn't really know where the shooters are going to be, where the help is coming from. And so it's harder for him to anticipate because these sets are kind of more ragged. And so I think, quite honestly, the Raptors should run through Kawhi in the fourth quarter. They should just try to limit his dribbling. I think that's probably the weakest part of his offensive arsenal is the fact that you know, he's not really a crafty dribbler that will be able to evade double teams and stuff like that. And I think the best way to do that is just put him in the post. He loves to operate in the mid-range, you know, you know, clear the floor, put three guys on one side. Kyle can input the ball with Kawhi. You know, if they try to front him, he has long arms. Kyle's a great passer. Pass over the top, Kawhi goes to the basket. Or if they don't front and they just play behind Kawhi, then Kawhi has it right in the sweet spot. Like, I think a post-up is basically, you know, the Raptors' best uh crunch time option but honestly I think the Raptors don't really have too many legitimate flaws I think they have um, this is just more rust than anything else and I think over time hopefully the Raptors can implement um, more sets into the offense one team that does have a legitimate issue with their offense is the Boston Celtics I mean cash what's going on with the Celtics who are 27th ranked in offense despite all this talent and all this great coaching well as Brad Stevens said there's a myriad of uh, issues right now on the offensive side of the ball you just like run through some of the numbers and yeah you mentioned it 27th in offensive efficiency 
The only teams scoring worse than Boston right now are Phoenix, Chicago, and Atlanta, who are all obviously tanktastic. Um, this is six seasons under Stevens, and they've ranked 26th, 19th, 10th, 7th, 18th, and now 27th in offense. Like, there's a pattern here of, at best, you know, slightly above average um, offense for a Brad Stevens team in the NBA. There's not really any easy solution. The, the cliche thing would be, you know, just make their open looks, because when you look at their actual shot profile, um, they're top five in terms of the percentage of their looks that are coming from three-point range. And they're also top five in terms of generating open or wide open three-point looks. But then they're bottom 10 in making those shots, right? So, I mean, luck would play a factor there. Gordon Hayward and Jalen Brown, both good shooters shooting under 30% for three on the year. Al Horford only touched 30% finally on the season last night. So these are capable shooters that should start making shots as the season goes on. But there's other things that are much more concerning that aren't just luck based um Jason Tatum for one is kind of indicative of the whole team's offensive struggles in the sense that okay he's taking more threes this year but his mid-range and his long two attempts are also up and he's just not getting to the rim anymore Mm -hmm. as a rookie about a third of Jason Tatum's field goal attempts were coming within three feet of the rim this year that's down to 20 percent of his attempts and as a team the Celtics are 28th in terms of attempts at the rim but they're fifth in mid-range attempts, right? So they're not taking high percentage looks. And when you compound that with missing the looks, that the good looks that they are getting, it's just, you know, they're really discombobulated on the offensive end. And then even in terms of moving the ball, Brad Stevens' teams, even when they haven't been great offensively, the one thing they do is they move the ball. This year, the Celtics are bottom five in terms of passing, like just total passes per game. There's just everywhere you look, it doesn't really make much sense because there are too many um, good shooters, good creators, whether you're talking about being able to create for themselves or facilitate for others. There's just too many good offensive players on this team for them to look the way they do right now. Yeah, I agree. And I think that they will start to regress toward the mean as far as knocking down open jump shots because I do think they're mostly stocked with good shooters. Um and you know will made this point um off air but like a lot of their open threes that they're getting are like marcus smart open threes that are basically deliberately designed to create a shot that maybe seems on paper like a good shot because there's no defender within 10 feet of him but if it's marcus smart shooting it or if it's aaron baines you know like shooting it from his tippy toes with that weird delivery that he has then it's like not actually a good shot but i will say that i think a lot of their process stuff has still been good I think they're one of the better teams in the league at opening up three-pointers, basically just using uh, like cuts and screens off of the ball. Horford and Baines, both really good screeners, um, and they set a lot of flare screens. Their pick and pop is really effective. Um, and I, I think ultimately, like even if the shooting like has a little bit of positive regression, that's going to make a big impact. Um, but I do think uh, you know they're still bottom five in uh, field goal attempts at the rim. Um, and I think they're bottom five in free throw rate as well. So uh, obviously the, a little bit of diversification could go a long way there. Um, and Jason Tatum is somebody that's been singled out a lot. But I do think that because he was so effective last year as a guy who didn't play with the ball in his hands as much, he was kind of catching and shooting from the corner and had a really high three-point percentage as a result, uh, but was also using that to attack closeouts and get to the rim. And this year he just like hasn't really been doing that. Like. He will attack closeouts. He will put the ball on the floor. But for whatever reason, he's been a bit tentative and will like pull up short and shoot from mid-range instead. And uh, he's a really good finisher. So I think they would probably like to see him 
uh, get to the rim a little bit more. And I think on the whole, just start to play inside out a little bit more because right now they're playing outside in, which can be really effective, but I think they need to have a more varied attack for it to be successful. I think some of the disconnect here with the Celtics is that we have such a high opinion of the town and we also have such a high opinion of the coaching that it just doesn't make sense that the coaching has basically not been able to suss out um, better pro- a result than what's going on. But I also think that when you really look at the Celtics, I mean, I think we've all talked about it, like they don't, they just don't get to the rim. And you're not going to be a good offense in the NBA if you don't get to the rim and you don't get free throws, right? You can't just shoot your threes on your way to, you know, a great offense. And to, to be honest, their three-point shooters aren't that great. It's not like, you know, this, these aren't the Warriors. And I think the expectation coming into this year was that, hey, you know, Gordon Hayward's going to be healthy. He's going to bring more balance to the offense. Jason Tatum's going to keep developing. He's going to bring more balance to the offense. And that just hasn't happened. Hayward mostly stays on the perimeter. Tatum mostly stays towards the perimeter, even though he can drive inside. I agree. I think he should go inside more. But um, I don't know. You just look at the rest of that team. Like, who can actually drive at the basket? It's Kyrie, obviously. But besides that, Rozier, not really. He doesn't really finish well. You know, Marcus Smart definitely doesn't finish well. He's actually better posting up than anything else, which is weird for a point guard. Um, And then you look at their bigs. None of their bigs roll to the basket. They're not a threat. Al Horford is purely a pick-a-pop guy, right? By occasion, he will, you know, catch a defense by surprise by going inside. But for the most part, he's going to pop. And then Aaron Baines this year has become a pick-a-pop guy. But even if he rolls, he's not very good at finishing. He's like 6'8", and he's got short arms. And then, who is it, like Daniel Tice? Like, they don't have a vertical threat going to the basket. And so, I think, I mean, obviously, they could address it through a trade. And I feel like, you know, that's ultimately what they might have to do just to get a better piece in the middle but they just don't get to the rim and until they get to the rim and and until they draw some fouls like they're not gonna be good offense I mean the only time they had a good offense was when Isaiah Thomas went there and Isaiah Thomas all he did was go to the basket and draw fouls and it's not a coincidence that those are the only two years the Celtics have been above average on offense with Brad Stevens. But then, so do you think that's more of a roster construction issue on Danny Ainge's part? Or do you think it's a Brad Stevens issue and not being able to... Because again, like we're talking about a guy like Jason Tatum who's fully got the tools to yeah. get to the rim and like suck in a defense. So why isn't he? I, I don't know. I think, honestly, this summer Tatum really did spend a lot of time working out with Kobe and Kobe told him to shoot a lot of contested twos. Um, but I mean, I think in recent games, I think Tatum is sort of... Uh, basically received more of a directive to basically ditch those long twos and go to the rim more. And I think you're seeing it. I think part of that is on coaching. I think Brad wanted to see sort of where the roster was and let the talent settle in. And I think as the season progresses, he's going to have um, Tatum driving to the rim more often. You know, Brown is already a guy that attacks the basket. And But I, I also think that they could use another guy, like just an actual role threat, like even like a Nerlens Noel type of guy who can just go to the basket. I'm not saying go get Nerlens. I don't think he's good enough to play on the Celtics, but yeah, I mean, they're, the rest of their guards are mostly just shooters. But um, another team that I think right now, you might even put them ahead of the Celtics, and, and Wolf on you probably will, but the Sixers are very deadly. I mean, ap- after getting Jimmy Butler, there's still a lot of uncertainty, but they've largely been successful. Their offense has been great. Um, and I, I, outside of basically lacking some depth, and some outside shooting, I think the Sixers are one of the most complete teams in the East after this trade. Yeah, I mean, we all expressed some level of uh, reticence when they made that deal. And, you know, we wanted to see how it looked on the floor before we made any judgments about how uh, successful this team could be. But 
frankly, after that choppy start in that game in Orlando in Butler's first uh, first game, like they've been really good, uh, and their starting lineup it has a plus twenty six net rating in fifty five minutes so far. Um, so I, I mean, look, they haven't played any elite teams, but they have so much talent that I feel like they like that might just win out and Joel Embiid's been ridiculous like he handily won his head-to-head matchup with Anthony Davis last night and Butler's been good too I think he's proven to be pretty adaptable in the past like if you remember when he first started playing in Minnesota last year the first month of that season or so he was kind of taking a back seat yeah, he averaged like 14 points a game. Yeah, and he it was sort of like a feeling out process for him. And eventually he sort of just took over the offense because I think he recognized that Towns and Wiggins weren't going to do it. I don't think that's going to be the case in Philadelphia, right? Like Embiid, I think, has a vice grip on that offense right now. And, you know, Ben Simmons, I think, looked really... Um, I don't know, like he was out of it, I guess, a little bit, like that first game when he only took five shots and he was sort of drifting without the ball and didn't exactly know where he was supposed to be or what he was supposed to do. He, to me, has looked a lot more comfortable since then. And I think him and Butler can kind of learn to play off each other a little bit more. They they do a good job. Like they're running more pick and roll now and um, Simmons and Embiid will come up and set, uh, set those like monster double screens. And Butler's not shooting a ton of threes just yet, but like, just the space that you can clear with those two guys screening for you and like his ability to get downhill and get into the paint is really effective and uh wilson chandler's been good like jj reddick's been good like they can space the floor around him adequately uh that i think you know there's enough talent there to think that they're going to be really solid uh the one structural concern i have about that roster is just that like uh they need to space the floor around those guys and a lot of the people that they use to space the floor are not good defenders. Um, and I think uh, that to me would be an issue because the, the one real like three and D guy they had was Covington. And without him, it's like they're relying heavily on, you know, Landry Shamit and Mike Muscala uh, and Redick, obviously. So like these guys have to be on the floor, but they can be exploited at the other end. So I think if there's one thing you could say that Philly needs, it's um, somebody who can shoot, but who can also play defense. You know who they thought uh, probably at some point was going to be able to play both ends of the court? Uh, Markel Fultz. And yeah. he has become the pump-faking elephant in the room uh, in this conversation because we're talking about a number one overall pick in the NBA draft that forgot how to shoot a basketball. Yeah. like yeah. Take that in for a second. And I know we've talked about it before. I mean, I'm sure any podcast talks about the NBA has, but it somehow got weirder. Like a story that already involved a pro basketball player a year and a half removed from being the number one pick, forgot, forgetting how to shoot a basketball, somehow got weirder this week when his agent slash attorney, who is referred to as his attorney and not just his agent, um, apparently wanted to keep him off the court until they got like a second opinion next week on what is now apparently also a wrist injury, not just a shoulder issue. And instead, he ended up taking part in practice that day and played last night. And like, you got Brett Brown and Elton Brown Elton Brand saying they had like no idea he still had these issues with his shoulder and now his wrist and like Markel Fultz isn't really saying anything but he's still playing and practicing and then his agent slash lawyers apparently not wanting him to play or practice like it's a gong show right now and I know it it shouldn't necessarily distract from what the current team is doing because they do look good and with Butler in the fold everything's adding up but like this is a legitimate story and it's a fascinating one for all the wrong reasons like this is insane 
Okay, so if we all agree that Philadelphia needs to make a trade um, and, you know, that Fultz is basically not cutting it right now, and I think the question naturally has to arise. Like, do you basically pull the plug on Fultz, you know, get what you can from him now? Um, because let's be real, if he doesn't fix this issue, he's not going to play in the NBA, right? Right now, his best attribute really is that he was picked number one overall. And eventually, over time, if you play long enough and you pump fake in, on enough free throws, you're going to lose all your value. And I don't even know how much value he has right now, but I think, you know, you could cash out with Fultz right now and get a more immediate piece. I think you could probably get a decent rotation guy. Like, you know, Wolf on you listed a couple of names here, like, you know, Kelly Olenek, maybe Markeith Morris, something like that. Um, you know, like, do you pull the plug on Fultz right now? Because I think, like, you look at what happened to the last number one pick that was just a complete, complete bust, right? Like Anthony Bennett. Like, Bennett basically was thrown into a deal as just salary filler. He had almost no value by the time he was traded along with Wiggins. Like, I don't know. Do you do the same thing with Fultz? I think the Fultz situation is different than the Bennett situation because the the reasons that Fultz was picked number one overall, I just think, like, a lot of that stuff is still there. Like, he's still fast, athletic, like, still a good ball handler, still a good passer. It's just... The jumper, like, I don't know what you do. I don't know if it's fixable, but I do think that there's probably a team out there or multiple teams out there who think, like, let's get him in. Like, let's see if we can rebuild this thing from scratch. And then, like, the rest of the game is already there. It's in place. And this is all that's really missing. With Bennett, it was like, I think you could kind of tell right away that it was a bad pick. And he was, like, out of shape, basically, from Jump Street. And he was talking about, you know, chalking it up to his asthma or his sleep apnea or whatever it was. I think it was clear that, like, he wasn't going to live up to that billing. And maybe it's clear that Fultz isn't going to either, but I have to think that there's more hope that he can do it just because of, like, his body type and the fact that he has proven it before. Like, he's shown that he can be a deadly off-the-bound shooter. Um if I was Philly, like, yeah, I would try and bring in another piece. I would maybe hold off on uh, on sending out Fultz just because I think I don't know how much lower his trade value can get than it is right now. I think if you have to, like, I, I, do, I do think Olenek would be a great piece for them because they're really thin in the front court. They are relying too heavily on Muscala and on Amir Johnson. And Olenek, to me, is a guy who can space the floor but also give them solid front court defense. And I think he'd be a really good fit for them. Markeith Morris as well. Uh, if they had to include Fultz in that deal, I mean, man, it's it's just crazy to think that like 18 months after being picked number one overall, that's his trade value. Yeah, getting I, traded for Kelly Olynyk. I also think that like eventually, um, you might get tired as an organization with how much sort of bad news and sort of curiosity. It's almost it's a morbid curiosity that surrounds Fultz, right? Like we're always looking at his jumpers and whatever, and like. It's just weird. It's just a weird situation, and teams always have to answer for what Fultz is doing, um, you know, like all these random reports. Like, it's just like a dark cloud that kind of hangs over the organization. I'm not saying that's on Fultz. I feel really bad for him. He's so young, and he came in with a lot of promise. But I, I kind of want to push back on that because what you said of, like, the rest of the game is there because it's not like a Ben Simmons situation where, like, man, he's so dominant except he just can't shoot. I don't really think he's a very good defender. Like, I'm speaking about Fultz. And, like, I don't really think that the playmaking is sort of next level that you're like, wow, we still can keep him on the floor. and Or, like, the rebounding or even the finishing. Like, he has some nice dunks, but he's not really a constant presence going to the basket. And, like, if if you're the Sixers, I mean, like, they're playing like T.J. McConnell over him, who's 
uh, impending free agent, like, and really not a very highly touted player in the first place. Like, that's an awkward situation. I don't know how long you can basically just sit on this Fultz thing. Like, it, it's, I think it's just going to get worse. Also, when you think of, like, guys like Simmons or, like, even to another extent, a point guard like Ricky Rubio, who, who at least early in his career, like, couldn't shoot but can do all these other things, and it was about improving his shot. Like, with Markel Fultz, it's not just about shooting a better percentage. It's literally like he has to learn how to feel comfortable shooting a basketball again like he doesn't know how to shoot it's not like he doesn't shoot well he doesn't even know it's like teaching a kid how to play basketball yeah it's the yips right it's like chuck knoblock or matthew sasser like any number of people we've seen in the past who basically there's like a psychological block there and i'm not i don't want to diagnose the guy or decide that i know what's best for him but it just seems like until he gets like the mental thing sorted out i mean I don't know. Maybe it is physical. I, I I can't purport to know what I'm talking about here, but um, like watching him at the free throw line, it's like you watch him in a game, and yeah, like his jumper doesn't look that great. Like it still takes him too long to get it off, and he hasn't been super accurate. But he can shoot it normally. Like it looks normal, more or less. When he's standing at the free throw line, and suddenly he has all this time, and and he's thinking about it too much. That's when you see the hitch in his shot, or when he's like ping ponging it back and forth before he shoots a free throw. Like, it's, I, I don't know, it's clear to me that it's something mental, and I don't know if that's any more overcomable than something physical would be, but um, I think if anyone has an impetus to try and fix it, it's probably Philadelphia. Uh, one other team that we want to touch on in terms of the tops in the East is the Milwaukee Bucks, arguably, who have, they have almost been the best team in the NBA, if not just, I can maybe remove the almost. I, they've, yeah, I don't think it's almost at this point. They've just destroyed teams. I mean, they're just coming off a win right now where... You know, they destroyed the Portland Trailblazers by a score of 143 to 100. Now, Portland is on a long road trip, and it's right before Thanksgiving. And so, you know, maybe they want to go home or whatever, but 143 to 100. Um, the only issue I could really diagnose the Bucks with right now is that they allow too many three-pointers. They're basically fourth in the NBA in terms of most threes allowed. And um, I think part of that is just has to do with their big men. Like they want their big men to stay in the paint. Their issue last year defensively was that they couldn't cover the rim at all, and so this year they're just tolling their bigs. Like Brook Lopez, stay in the paint, protect the basket. Doesn't matter what happens on the three point line, just stay in the paint. And they've done a great job of protecting the basket, but I think they need a more versatile big because in the playoffs it's about matchups. And if you are going up against a team like the Celtics, who last time the Celtics played the Bucks, they just set a franchise record with threes. And they shot like about 40 or 53s in that game. And basically, all they did was just pick and pop with the big man. Like, you know, Al Horford who can shoot and Joel Embiid who can shoot. And these are matchup issues that, you know, I think are a little bit unsustainable for the Bucks. So if they could just grab another player, another center who can defend the perimeter, I think they're set. That's the dream with Thon Maker, right? Like, <laughs> he, he should be that guy. If they could just get anything out of him, I feel like this problem is, is almost solved. And I don't think... The scheme they're playing is objectively bad either it's just sometimes they need to adjust when there is a team that has a dynamic pick and popping big or a guard who just has a quick release who can pull up like Kemba Walker um, or Damian Lillard you know and, and those are the games I think where they've had to actually adjust their scheme and usually the answer is like they will stick Ilyasova at the five and have him come up a little bit higher but he's still not the most mobile big in the world so all he does is set charge like take charges that's most of his defense is taking charges yeah i mean he's very I, good at it though he's very he's good at flopping. like he's you know for 
for what he is, I think he does a really good job. He plays yeah, his role sure. exceptionally well, but I do think they would be well served having a more mobile big who can come out to the perimeter um, and take away some of those three-point looks. I definitely think if you can find that guy, and, and like you said, if you can adjust a little more in-game and be able to match up with like different offenses, that's good. But, I mean, I don't know. At the end of the day, there's very few teams, if any, that can actually competently guard the rim and the three-point line. And for what the Bucks are doing right now, it's working. Like, their scheme is clearly to guard the rim. And uh, if you look at in terms of, like, uh, field goal attempts at the rim allowed per game, the Bucks are under 18 allowed. Mm-hmm. No one else is under 20. Like, they lead the league in that regard. The Lakers, for example, who are in last are almost at 30. They're at 29. Mm-hmm. It's like a very big disparity. And then in terms of field goal percentage allowed at the rim, the Bucks are also top three or four. So as much as I agree, it'd be great if they can find a way to also, you know, at least somewhat competently guard the three-point line what they're doing right now is working and yeah i'll just say about the bucks so basketball reference simple rating system which is like a, a metric that takes into account point differential and strength of schedule the bucks are at 14.8 the next best team in the league is the raptors at 6.8 so <laughs> the bucks have basically been more than twice as good as any other team in the league as far as just like the teams that they've beaten their margin of victory, like they're mopping the floor with teams and good teams. Like I, to me, they've been the best team in the league, the most impressive team in the league, and it hasn't been close. Yeah. Um, with apologies to Wolfon's Pacers, um, <laughs> you know the Pacers have honestly they've they've been impressive. Um, they've had some nice wins, but and to be honest, they're probably ahead of the Celtics right now. But uh, I would say so. probably. <laughs> well, yeah, the Celtics are not very good right now. Let's be real. But I think we can all realistically say the Celtics can be better. But uh, I think those are the top four teams in the Eastern Conference, and uh, let's move on to the West. But before we do that, another reminder that uh, this podcast is brought to you by Entropy. Uh, Toronto sports fans are probably already very familiar with Entropy from their presence at Leafs and Raptors games, where they're shooting out free t-shirts during the breaks. Right now, they have a Black Friday deal, 20% off all apparel. T-shirts, hats, jackets, hoodies, just upload your logo and use the promo code Black Friday. That's all one word, Black Friday. It's a perfect time to check them out at Entropy.com. All right. Let's talk about the West. Um, the Warriors, not much to say about the Warriors other than they're a mess, but I think it's a completely fixable mess. All they have to do is just get on the same page. And get Steph Curry back. Get Steph Curry back, <laughs> and they're fine. They're going to win the title. Um, <laughs> the Grizzlies, we're going to talk about the Grizzlies in an upcoming podcast because, qu- quite honestly, I don't think any of us understand how they're tops in the NBA. in their Tops in the West, sorry, in terms of record. That's something we could have never seen coming. Um but um, one team that I think we initially predicted was going to be one of the best teams in the NBA and definitely one of the best teams in the West is the Houston Rockets. After cutting Melo, they look to be fixed. Cash, do you see any issues with the Rockets? I mean, look, they've been better since cutting Melo and getting Jeff uh, Bedzelik back to organize their defense. They're, back, they're over 500. They're back in a playoff spot. Harden's been great again. Chris Paul's looked better. But at the end of the day, the issue with this team is that they just don't have enough NBA caliber rotation talent like they've probably got seven guys that are actually playable long term and all due respect to Gary Clark who's actually been somewhat surprising especially in the defensive end like this roster after their big three of Harden Capella and Paul is not very good the issue is they replaced Trevor Ariza Luke Bamute and Ryan Anderson with Carmelo Anthony who's already gone Michael Carter-Williams, who's already out of the rotation. Brandon Knight, who hasn't played in a year and a half, and no one knows when he's going to play. Marquise Chris, who's not playing and had his fourth-year option decline. James Ennis has been okay. Again, we, we mentioned Clark. And then, like, even a guy like Eric Gordon, 
who they expected a lot from because he's been so good the last couple of years, is playing horrible. And it's like, I don't know, do you look to flip a guy like Gordon maybe for a more competent piece? He's got $14 million guaranteed on the books next year. No one's taking that contract right now. Like, The solutions are obviously within because there's not much they can do from a roster construction standpoint, and they probably just have to rely on the buyout market. But it's very concerning when you look at this team, when you consider how many defensive weapons they were able to throw at the likes of Golden State last year. And now, like, Mike D'Antoni's scratching his head, even just looking for an NBA-caliber talent to pull off the bench. Yeah, this is the the rare team where I think the solution to their problem is just play better. Because, yeah, they lost Ariza, they lost Mbamute, but aside from that, this is more or less the same roster that won 65 games and went to Game 7 of the Western Conference Finals last year. And the fact is, they just haven't played particularly well. Like you mentioned Gordon. I think he's started to play a little bit better, but he still, to me, just like hasn't quite had the burst that he had last year when he was just dusting dudes off the dribble. Um, and he hasn't shot the ball well either. Harden, to me, has really started to round into form. He didn't have a great start. Chris Paul has looked better, but still not quite at the level he was at last year. And P.J. Tucker is basically holding that defense together, you know, by a thread almost on his own. Um, and, th- you know, they just need for their core guys, I think, to play a little bit better and for the guys around them to play their roles, which is knock down shots and defend. And I think Gary Clark is a really good defender. I think Ennis has looked pretty good in stretches at that end of the floor. Um, and, you know, aside from that, like, all they can do is hope that that three-man core, you know, Paul, Harden, and Capella, uh, can do their thing and basically give them a chance to get back to where they were. Uh, like, I, I don't know if it's any more complicated than that. Um, you guys mentioned the buyout market. I mean, last year the, the Rockets did go on the buyout market. Uh, it's sort of hit or miss, as it always is. I mean, they got Joe Johnson. He couldn't really move at that point. He's basically done. Um, Gerald Green, he was okay. But, I mean, ultimately not really a guy you can rely on too much. He's really just if he's hot, you can play him. Otherwise, he's mostly useless. Um, if you're Daryl Morey Cash, like, who are you looking for in the buyout market? Who are you placing calls on and making sure, like, hey, maybe you're on a bad team. You may want to get bought out and come to Houston where there's good weather, two stars, and you know, no tax. Well, the first guy that comes to mind who's on a bad team and probably gives them exactly what they need is Trevor Ariza. <laughs> okay. That'd be, I, I, uh, is there, is, aren't there rules against this? I mean, uh, no, he can't be traded to the team that he played for the year before until a certain deadline anyway. But I think as far as being bought out, I don't know what the no, restrictions are. Yeah, I'm pretty are, sure he can, he can rejoin the Rockets if he's bought out. Yeah. Okay. All right. I think. This could be like a Derek Fisher scenario without the, yeah, other details. Unfortunate circumstances. Like um, he's wasting away in Phoenix right now. Yeah, he's like yeah. got his he's, 15 mil though. Yeah, but uh, hasn't been playing particularly well. And I think you know if the Tyson Chandler saga has taught us anything, it's that how a veteran player plays in Phoenix is not necessarily indicative of what they're capable of doing. So yeah, maybe we see him back on the Rockets before the season's out. Anyone else? No, I'm sticking with Trevor Ariza. Just Trevor Ariza, okay. Yeah. Honestly, I mean, look, this is basically, they just get the same team back. Once they get Ariza back, I mean... What's Luke Pamute have to? I mean, he's not playing much for the Clippers, yeah. so you yeah. might as well just get him too. Seems like that shoulder injury has been pretty debilitating for him, so... You're watching a lot of Mbamute these days? <laughs> no. Oh. Just, I see know, a lot of him when I'm watching things. Gallo. <laughs> oh, yeah, you love your Italians. Um, okay, the Pelicans. They've been, really gre- they've been really good, I mean, especially offensively. Um, playing this up-tempo offense, playing a very unconventional offense with uh, basically three dominant big men uh, that are all able to play together sometimes even. But, you know, 
I'm still perplexed as to how the Pelicans work as a team. And Wolfon, you just recently wrote a great piece about this up on the Score app. Can you explain to me what the Pelicans are doing well and, you know, where they could, you know, stand to improve? Um, what they've been doing well is score the ball. Like, they're one of the best offenses in the NBA. Anthony Davis has been outstanding. And both of those bigs, Randall and Miritich, have played off of him really really well even with the kind of lack of spacing with him and Randall um, they switch up their style a little bit when those two guys play together and they just kind of crash the offensive glass and play bully ball a little bit Um, and with Miritich it's more like they run those horn sets where Davis can roll and Miritich can pop and you know they have enough talent there to make it work even if the fit isn't perfectly seamless and I think the one thing that's missing to kind of tie it all together like they have really good guards. Etwan Moore has been unbelievable. Drew Holiday has been great. Um, they have really good bigs. They don't have a lot in between, and what I think they're missing are wings. Like, they don't really have any wing depth, and it's like they're starting Wesley Johnson, uh, and when it's like they, there's a big wing on an opposing team that needs to be stopped, Drew Holiday basically has to guard up a position, or they're relying on Wes Johnson. Like, they also, like, they could use a little bit more three-point shooting. I think they're 27th in three-point attempt rate, so... They should definitely be doing everything they can to get a 3 and D wing in there. And, you know, whatever it takes to get him. Uh, They have uh, Solomon Hill's contract to basically use as ballast. uh, And they have Wesley Johnson's expiring deal. So whatever they can package that with, whether, you know, it's a couple of second rounders or like a protected first rounder, as much as I'm sure they are hesitant to trade a first rounder for like the eighth straight year. Um... I think there are guys out there that could really help them, like Kent Bazemore in Atlanta, potentially. Uh, Courtney Lee, maybe, uh, with the Knicks, who he hasn't played yet this year because of a weird neck injury. But if he gets back on the floor, I think he'd be a really nice fit. Wes Matthews, maybe. Sure. Terrence Ross. Like, any of these guys, I think, could really help them out. Um, And one other thing is, like, their defense has been poor, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that they don't have a wing stopper. Um, But one of the other things is, like, their transition D has been bad. And I think I, I talked to Miritich a couple of weeks ago when the Pelicans were in Toronto and he was saying like, he thinks playing up tempo all the time at the offensive end has sometimes come at the expense of the defensive end. Like they're burning themselves out a little bit and they're focusing on playing fast offensively, but they're not really focusing on doing the same thing at the defensive end. And as well as it's worked for them at the offensive end, I wonder if kind of scaling that back a little bit uh, and focusing more on their transition defense wouldn't help them out. Yeah. And, even when like all three bigs play together, I think that's a look. And you know, Joe noted this for us in, in our pod notes. But like, that's a look they should go to more often. It's very unconventional, especially for the modern NBA when everyone's going like four or five out. But these aren't like plotting big men who are going to slow you down. You can still run as you want with all three out there. And they tried it down the stretch against uh, Philly last night, and it kind of worked. Like they got them even closer in that game. And there was a, a number of times where Miritich would grab the defensive rebound and kind of like run the offense like a point forward. It was really fun. Um, the other thing too is like, man, Wes Johnson has to be, in terms of like the last decade, I don't know if there's a worse big minute player in the NBA. Even some of those names Wolfon was mentioning as like potential uh, trade candidates, a lot of them were mediocre, but they're still a lot better than Wes Johnson. And honestly, they, they need any upgrade they can get at that three spot. Yeah, and that, that three big lineup has only played 29 minutes together, but they have an 86.6 wow. defensive rating. Um, because, you know, all those guys, they're large, but they're also pretty mobile. Um, and all of them can handle the ball. And I wouldn't 
play it big minutes necessarily, mainly because if they did, they would have nobody off of their bench. But to close games, I definitely think it's a look that they should go to more often. Um, we can wrap the pod on the Lakers, who have really turned their season around after hitting sort of a softer patch in their schedule. They're 8-2 and two in the last 10 games. But let's talk about the Blazers, who have really responded well, um, showed a lot of composure as a team after getting swept in the first round um, last year by the Pelicans. Cash, what are the issues with the Blazers? Because I think, to be honest, this is just basically the same team as before, except they're performing a little bit better. But I think ultimately they're going to be doomed by the same issues. Yeah, and look, I'd, I'd largely agree with that. I think the issue with this team is still that they don't have enough um, offensive creativity outside of Dame and CJ McCollum. And that's what uh, the Pelicans exposed last year, right, in the playoffs. If, if this team runs into a team, again, like New Orleans, who Rondo's gone, but now Alfred Payton's there, um, with Drew Holiday, who can defend the perimeter, the Blazers are in trouble because they just don't have anyone else that can get something going for them unless you consider Evan Turner that guy. Yusuf Nurkic has been like a solid two-way center for them, and he's the kind of guy, like, fine, if they trap a guard, Nurkic can get something going in, like, a four-on-three situation, but Nurkic isn't going to consistently, like, run your offense if one of those guys or both of them is having an off night or have been negated. So that, to me, is the, you know, the big issue here. And you know, we talked about Houston not really knowing what the solution is because their roster and the, the, their contracts don't allow for it. Portland's kind of in the same boat. They have still some bad contracts on their books. Most of them are run through at least next season, if not more. And then you look at a guy like Zach Collins and some of the young players on the bench who have been good so far. Do you really want to flip a guy like Zach Collins for some short-term help when he actually looks like a potential long-term piece? Probably not. So if you're Portland, you probably got to live with the fact that, again, you're a good team, you're a playoff team, and maybe if things bounce your way, you can win a couple rounds, but there is a clear ceiling on this team, and there's a very clear flaw. The other thing I'll note, too, is as much as you want those two guys on the floor together because there's not enough creativity elsewhere, I just don't like how many minutes, though, the Blazers go with neither of them on the court. Like, CJ McCollum's played 600 minutes this year, 574 of them have been with Lillard on the court. That's only 26 minutes of him on his own. I'm sure it's similar for Lillard. Like, there's just not enough... Sorry, there's too many minutes where neither of those guys is on the court, and it's a gong show. i just like to point out how spiritually similar this team is to last year's Raptors. Like, they get swept out of the playoffs. Um, they bring back basically the same team when everyone thought they're, you know, they might be due for a shakeup. They bring back Terry Stocks, and they you know, use basically the same personnel group but changed their identity. Uh, you know, they're running these five-man bench units. They're de-emphasizing pick and roll a little bit in favor of motion sets. Um, and suddenly they look like a bit of a different team. And I think that's been great for them. They look rejuvenated and they got off to a good start for the first time in like forever. Um, and so I think that could lead to like a lot of regular season wins, but I just have the same concerns going into the playoffs uh, about, you know, all the things that you mentioned and depth not being as big of a factor. And basically, secondary creation, I think, is going to continue to be an issue. And if Lillard and McCollum get taken out of the game, I mean, who's really going to be there to step up? Yeah, I mean, look, going back to your point about the Raptors, small guards in the playoffs struggle. The reason the Raptors struggled was because Lionel Rosen couldn't really score the same way. When defenses get more tight, foul calls become more scarce. And the same thing happens to Dame and CJ. Um, last thing, let's quickly touch on the Lakers. I mean... I think the Lakers' issue is very clear. They have LeBron, and LeBron has been phenomenal. He is almost leading the league in scoring. He's second right now. He's 0.1 points per game behind James Harden. Um, and this is despite the fact that LeBron, you know, is quote-unquote not a scorer. Um, but, I mean, aside from LeBron, who can really score on this team? And I mean, especially looking on the three-point line where the 
Lakers are 23rd in three-point attempts. You know, their second-leading scorer, Kyle Kuzma, is shooting under 30. Brandon Ingram is right at 30%. Um, they're actually getting pretty good shooting out of Lonzo Ball in terms of just his three-point shooting. Two-point shooting is another matter altogether. Um, but, I mean, they just got to get a shooter. And the one I'm looking at right now, Bradley Beal. I feel like they are the perfect team to go out and get a 25-year-old star who can shoot and exist off the ball with multiple years left on his contract, and that's also a very reasonable contract, go get Bradley Beal. He fits the Lakers perfectly. Yeah, I, I think it makes a lot of sense. And everyone talks about how much patience LeBron has with this team or should have, and because, you know, they are a young team and he knew what he was getting himself into and he's there for three or four years, they'll probably get another star this summer. At the same time, look at the Western Conference right now. Look at all the flaws of all the teams we just talked about. Okay, maybe the Warriors aren't gettable yet, but... If you're the Lakers, you have LeBron James. You have a legit chance to at least get to the conference finals right now because the rest of the West, there's a lot of question marks there. You go get a Bradley Beal, and now to me, you're the favorites to get to the West final with the Warriors. So I don't know. Like I, I don't really see what would be stopping them except for you know franchises being married to their young prospects, and maybe that's the issue with the Lakers. And I just like I can't say this enough, but squandering a year of LeBron James's career. At this point in time, you know, when he's 33 years old and has played over 54,000 NBA minutes, if you include the playoffs, it's a crime. Like, it, he's not going to be able to do this forever, even if it seems like he will be able to. Like, go out and get him some help and try and win right now. Like, I just, I know they really like Ingram and they have high hopes for what he can be. Like, I respect that. I, I don't see it personally, but I understand the desire to like want to have a homegrown prospect because they haven't really had that in a long time. But LeBron is there, and LeBron is in the twilight of his career, and you have an opportunity. Like the West is kind of in disarray right now, and you know Beal, you mentioned, I think would be like a perfect running mate for him. Um, and there are any number of other players I think who could be available. Like obviously. Kawhi Leonard was available, and I don't know if it was hesitance on their part or San Antonio's part, but uh, I think they're probably regretting not acquiring him. Um, I understand they want to keep their cap space open, but I feel like they can probably still do that. I don't know if they can have max room, but they can still have some cap space available even if they go out and make a trade for a star right now. Yeah, and look, if you're going to trade one of those young guys, definitely trade it for a star. Don't trade it for a stopgap solution. Trade it for a guy like... Beal, who's 25, who has multiple years left on his contract, and it's a very reasonable deal, and who fits with LeBron, right? I think you get Beal, and then you go out into the free agency market next summer, and you get another guy, or, you know, who knows, you try to trade for AD. I mean, Beal would be a great piece to include in an AD deal. Anyway, um, I think that does it for the podcast. Uh, once again, thank you to Entropy for sponsoring the show, uh, and, you know, for Cash and for Wolfhound, uh, you know, we're signing out. Pound the Rock. Pound the Rock.